0: This is a bonus episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm very excited to bring to you a extra episode of our podcast this week with special guest Professor Andre Carrington. Quran is our podcast host this week for this episode. Dr. Andre Carrington has a scholastic and academic discussion with Quran about his latest book. It's called Speculative Blackness, the Future of Race and Science Fiction. Both Karan and Dr. Carrington discuss the intersections of race, gender, class, and sexuality in the science fiction genre. What I really love about this discussion, it's done in a very academic and NPR-style kind of way. And there's really great discussion surrounding the book that was recently released on February 15th, and I was super impressed by the fact that Professor Carrington, that this was his first book. He's a professor over at Drexel University, and he teaches literary theory. He also teaches about comic books, and they have a discussion in this very episode about comic books and talk about characters such as Storm. But most importantly, talk about the issues of how people of color are depicted in the sci-fi genre, and where we are today, and where we're going in the future. So sit back, relax, and after this episode, check out Speculative Blackness, the Future of Race in Science Fiction. I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Thanks for listening.
1: This is Karan Jay and the blackgirlnerds.com podcast. Today we'll take a deep dive into speculative blackness, the future of race in science fiction with its author, Professor Dr. Andre Carrington. Professor Carrington is an associate professor of African-American literature at Drexel University in Philly, whose research focuses on the cultural politics of race, gender, and genre in 20th century black and American literature and the arts. His first book, Speculative Blackness, interrogates the meanings of race and genre through studies of science fiction, fanzines, comics, film, and television, and other speculative fiction texts. In addition to African-American literature and culture, he teaches courses on comics and graphic novels, LGBT literature and culture, global black literature, and literary theory. Welcome, Andre Carrington.
2: Hi, Karan. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you. First and foremost, I just want to say happy release day.
2: Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) What has it been like watching this work come to fruition for you?
2: It's been kind of a beautiful agony, right? I've been so excited about it for so long that giving it up into the hands of the excellent production people at university of Minnesota press and mm-hmm. seeing them start to promote it has been amazing because it's, it's real to me now and it's real to everyone else.
1: I hear you. The baby is here now. Yes. It's, it's been birthed today, uh, February the 15th. For those of you who don't know is the release of this magnificent work. I've had the opportunity to, uh, to, to dig into it myself. And it is, it is something to behold, Um, Before we get started and, and, and dig really, really deep, can you tell me who this book is for? What is Speculative Blackness all
2: about? This is a book for nerds, Black nerds, and people who really want to blend their love of things nerdy with their love and care for Black people. That's really what's at the foundation of my writing about the subjects of science fiction and popular culture. I wanted to write something that reflects who I am as a scholar and what interests have shaped me as somebody who imagines the future, hopes for the liberation of black people and our ability to be all that we can be in a society in which we're full participants. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to speak to people who share an interest in imagining the future and the forms of culture that we have used to do that, like science fiction, comics, film, and TV, but who haven't thought as consciously and deliberately about race and racism, maybe because they haven't had to, and maybe because they haven't known how.
1: So we talk on Black Girl Nerds a lot. You'll see a lot of pieces and hear a lot of, of, uh, of talk about intersectionality and inclusion and, um, and Blackness, plain and simple Blackness. Um, and we talk a lot about people of color all over the world, but does blackness in sci-fi necessarily equate to invisibility or is that just the perception?
2: I think that is a perception that's based on a lot of truth because we are invisible in some imaginings of the future. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we see the problems of the sort of hyper visibility that we deal with and the sort of hyper embodiment, the focus on the materiality of our black bodies overemphasized in a way that's very much like the way we live in the present. So what I think of and what I'm responding to in the book is uh, one line of argument and one line of vision in which thinkers have noticed that in some representations of a bright, brilliant future or even an apocalyptic future, black people are conspicuously absent, like our role in the future just doesn't figure in the minds of often white creators imagining human society because they don't see the full range of our humanity, including blackness. But on the other hand, I think that it's also problematic to assume that just because we're visible, that we're full participants in the future society we would like to see. And that, to me, rings true to the ways in which our visibility as black people in positions of power, in narratives about the world the way it is now, sometimes doesn't mean that we are fully able to participate in society and embrace, you know, the range of options that we would like to see for ourselves.
1: I don't remember where I heard this, but um, it was very recently I heard, uh, I'm not sure if it was a quote or someone who was being quoted that made the statement that uh, you don't see African Americans in sci-fi because you don't see because they don't see themselves in the future. Had you heard that?
2: I've not heard it put that way, but it sounds strangely and sadly true.
1: Strangely and sadly true. And, and here, here was the, the, the big awakening I had when reading your book. Everybody I know grew up with some kid that had this ridiculous artistic gift as a child. But why is it that we have such a low level of creators in this area, in this realm?
2: My view of that problem is that it's kind of endemic in the business of making culture and media itself. So when we see um, there's a paucity of images of black people in fields like children's books, there's a paucity of black people in original film storytelling, stories of the lives of people who could be black fictional stories, stories that aren't necessarily based on the lives of real-life individuals or historical. And there's a paucity of black voices and black faces in the writers' rooms of some TV shows, on the boards of corporations, and amongst the decision-makers at media corporations and publishers. And because of that, we aren't always taking part in the decisions about what kind of world the media that we use to imagine ourselves Will represent I think that that is as true of science fiction and fantasy as it is of all other genres and all other Endeavors and it's really it's the notion that things ought to be otherwise that can inspire us to push for our inclusion can inspire us to speak to people who are in power and can also enlighten hopefully enlighten the people who are in positions of power who recognize that what they're creating is continuous with their experience and with their desires for seeing a world they're accustomed to and maybe doesn't fully include and doesn't empower people who have just as much creative potential as they do and people who have just as much of a desire and a need and a right to be included in creating new kinds of worlds i think that fundamentally in science fiction and fantasy and in any other form of media. Whatever background you come from shapes the way that you're going to be able to participate in telling society stories about itself. And what I see is that because black people are systematically disempowered by racism, because we're adversely and disproportionately impacted by the ways that sexism homophobia, cis-sexism, and patriarchy work in our society, and because we don't have much wealth, we're not often in a position to decide what kinds of careers and ways of life we would like for ourselves, Mm -hmm. period. And so there are fewer of us doing the broad human range of things we deserve to be able to do because we are kept out of the halls of power in so many endeavors. And I think that is just as true of imaginative and speculative kinds of work in culture as it is true of other kinds of work, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more of us there are in a position to decide what we want to do with our lives, the more ways we will see ourselves taking a role in actively shaping and producing visions of our lives.
1: So to take a line from the book, and there were many, let me just tell you, my cup, my copy has many colors. Um, Excellent. There were so many great, just singular thoughts that were just so far-reaching. But to take a line from the book, how do the meanings of blackness and whiteness take shape in the popular imagination?
2: Mm. You know, I think what's important to recognize, right? And that's a line that I reiterate in some different ways throughout Mm -hmm. the book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the most important step that I think a lot of black people are accustomed to doing and are capable of doing, right? It's something that comes with identifying as black, is to recognize that our imagination includes our racial identity, our backgrounds, who we are and how we're positioned in society. And it's a function of white privilege to imagine that what you are envisioning, that what you are creating as an intellectual or as an artist or as a viewer, as a fan, that what you are creating doesn't include race, that it doesn't Mm -hmm. need to Mm -hmm. include race and racism, that it doesn't say anything in particular about race and racism and how they might function if we were to imagine society differently. I think that if we dislodge that power of white privilege to delude people into thinking that race isn't present where it's always present. Uh, And if we think more along the lines of what we can learn from black intellectuals and from black artists, that imagining the possibilities for race and racism might mean allows us to imagine ways out of the dilemmas we live with, Mm -hmm. imagines uh, the potential for us to, if not transcend to just redefine what it means to be people of African descent, what it means to be, part of a global diaspora, what it means to be the descendants of enslaved and free people, then we can do a lot of amazing critical work if we just reckon with the fact that race and racism are with us, yes. they're part of us. Yes, And so getting past that first step of just saying, okay, how do our imaginations take part in shaping the meanings of blackness and whiteness? For so many black people, it is often the case that we're prepared to take that first step. And I think that for a lot of white people, and as I see in a lot of the texts that I've read and the works I've examined, is that even when they're being somewhat ambitious about thinking about a utopia in which people collaborate across racial lines, like the utopia of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. or even when they're thinking of superheroes who will save the day or save the city, right, if those heroes are saving cities that are still segregated, if they're saving the day for people whose life chances mm. and rights are determined by things like racism and sexism, then, right, our visions already include the account of race and racism that we might take for granted. And so I think that first step is imagining that we can work with this stuff, that we can do something about them and that we have to.
1: I often wonder what, ha- what happens to the imaginations of children in the day and age that we live in um, fantasy sci-fi uh comic books all things nerdy um have become my reprieve as an adult who happens to be over 40 at this point but uh i'm kind of reconnecting to those things that provided safe escape for me uh as a young person and i'm rediscovering them in different forms of artistry uh as an adult and it's really interesting to be able to share those things with my children and even my grandchildren um you you gave a considerable amount of care and space to black women and our influence, our changes, our hyper and hyposexuality, uh, feminism and feminist uh, positions in sci-fi history. We are more often than not the sidecar in this narrative. At best, we're the sidecar. So what compelled you to create and dedicate this kind of space to women in your book?
2: Um, Black women compelled me to do that. Black women, black feminists, black women who are intellectuals and artists and mentors and influences on my life inspired me to do it. Um, My undergraduate advisor, not so many, but enough years ago now, I was a black feminist scholar, and she just was very real and very diligent about letting me know how this effort of criticism, how this career of being a professor would work and how it worked for her in ways that would not be the, the same for me, but how her experience and her guidance would be a resource and should be a resource for me. And so throughout you know, my career in academia and throughout my life just as a black person, black women have had the knowledge that I've needed to rely on to survive, to be imaginative, to stay motivated, to see how uh, people struggle with different challenges um, and those have all provided so many resources for me that it seems just more sensible than not. It seems right to devote attention to right, the different ways that popular culture has imagined black womanhood mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the ways that black women and black feminist intellectuals have taken the raw material of the culture we live in and reshaped it to suit their needs and responded to it on terms that, that declare who they want to be.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, chapters about Uhura and Storm. Um, Nichelle Nichols, um, just always just a beautiful woman and incredible mind, um, had a very unique place in science fiction history. And I want to talk about her impact being black, being a woman and a communications officer in plain sight. She had brown skin. She was beautiful. She was sexy and she was smart. She was sexy, but she was unsexualized. But how did Nichols' Uhura shape the image of women and black women in and out of science fiction? You made some really impressive, um, not just arguments, but some, some really interesting insights into her impact in the genre, in the television world, and outside of it. Can you expand on that without giving too much away?
2: Sure, sure. Um, Nichelle Nichols, fortunately, has so much to give as a thinker and a leader and an example that I can't give too much away Mm -hmm. by talking about what she's (laughs) contributed and what I wrote about. Um, The role of Uhura is, right, if we take a very sort of cynical look at popular culture and we just think that it perpetuates dominant ideologies and dominant viewpoints, then, yeah, we see Nichelle Nichols and we see that she's literally on the margins of a lot of scenes in Star Trek, right? She's behind Mm -hmm. the captain's chair. Mm -hmm. She's in the background or she's visible and she's not speaking that much. We can also look at her role and think of the kind of work that that character does, Mm -hmm. right? While it's not domestic labor in the 1960s on TV, that's pretty awesome. And while it's not a sort of bourgeois womanhood where she's in the home Right and performing right. a kind of femininity that we see for white women on television a lot, then we can see her role as a kind of pink collar, a kind of clerical worker in space and look at that and say, oh, well, that's not, you know, that's not her engaging in the work of liberation. That's not her blazing new trails. But on TV at the time, yes, for people who are you know, mm-hmm. relatively impoverished in terms of what popular culture is giving them, that's quite a breakthrough. It's a very big deal to see her performing that role. And when we look at how enduring that original Star Trek series is and how enduring that property is, Mm. right, if she had not come along to play that role and if she had not insisted that she have more lines and more consequential lines and if she had not insisted that she be styled in such a way that she felt good about the image of herself she was presenting, right? And Where her she quarters,
1: would, oh my goodness, her quarters were fabulous.
2: That, that was the scene to that me. That was everything. You know what occurs to me, right? So this is a an example of how we can engage with these popular culture products and then also think about them in a broader way than just what's on the surface, right? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can see many, many episodes of Star Trek and typically they will look all the same. And yeah, you will see Uhura as... A person who is not pivotal that much Mm -hmm. but there's a certain moment in um one episode in particular the tholian web where you are looking inside of uhura's quarters Mm -hmm. and she's not wearing her uniform and uh there's an image of it in the book and what occurs to me in that moment is that there's an interiority to uhura as a character Mm -hmm. and it's not identical to the interiority of michelle nichols an african-american actor dancer singer activist but it's this interiority that she has played a role in shaping for this black woman in the future. And to me, that's as radical as it's, it's so extraordinary, right? That yes, she is a human just like all other humans of the backgrounds in mm-hmm. this imagined future, but she has a distinctiveness, right? She's still black. She is still a black woman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the future. And I think that's so important, right? Just to say we're, we're here right we are here yes. in the fullness of who we would like to be and with the we can, throws
1: throws and toe you know I just had to put that in there because yeah. it was uh, uh, just get the book you won't be sorry just some of the images <laughs> I mean it, it's it to think how far how long ago that was the aesthetic of what they created for her personal world was it really spoke volumes
2: It does. Yeah. I mean, there are moments in her performance when you see glimpses of her that you don't necessarily have to walk that tightrope of like, Mm -hmm. is this an authentic black character? Is this an authentic black woman in the future? Because she's participating in a, a narrative that's speculative, right? Right. But as an actor, she has a she has a real influence. Um, because of who she is, because she's personally close to Gene Roddenberry, the creator. Mm-hmm. When she wants to make a difference in how that's going to look for herself, when she succeeds, that's really significant to be attentive to. And when she carves out some agency for herself that we can still see today, I think that's very important to hold on to. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a line, another line in the book that almost made me fall off the bed um, <laughs> because it was just so powerful. And uh, the the portion of the line that I want you to, to speak on is uh, an accomplice to her own subordination. You stated that she was compelled to perform similar roles on screen and backstage as an accomplice to her own subordination. Can you give me some thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's an interpretation of how Nichols talks about her frustrations in the series in her memoir, Beyond Uhura. So first off, I mean, the fact that her memoir is beyond Uhura is really important because she has a lot to say about the work that she had done in her career up to the time when she wrote it. And she's performing a gesture that's kind of like what Leonard Nimoy did. He wrote a book called I Am Not Spock. Yes. And he wrote another book called I Am Spock, <laughs> where, you know, he wanted people to see the full range of his career. Mm-hmm. And um, and Michelle Nichols understood, right, that her role was not as big and not as meaningful as it could be. But she also articulated that, you know, because her lines would be cut in rewrites of scripts, because she would have to spend a long time in that makeup chair, because they were not styling for and lighting for other black women mm-hmm. on that set. Mm-hmm. And because she wasn't often sort of taking part in some more adventurous parts of the narrative, right? Beaming down to other worlds, being off the bridge as well as on the bridge Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of the, the contours of her role and because of the hierarchy of, you know, who were the stars of the show and who was, you know, adding some color to the bridge, Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't often get to break out of that hierarchy. So, as much as she wanted to make it a little more than it was, she was very thoroughly aware that, you know, if that image is somewhat compromised and somewhat compromising, then she willingly embraces what that entails. And I think that's that's really important for us to know, right, that when we see people who've taken on roles that we might second guess, and when we, when we ask, you know, why would somebody engaging this kind of performance or how could they do this knowing that it's limited that it's never mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. revolutionary well she knows all that she can say for herself what she thinks it means and she does right and i think it's important for us to start there with the fact that yes she was aware of what it meant to her but that's in the context of a life's journey that is beyond uhura right for sure, for sure. Where she knows that's one thing she did that's one thing it meant but she also talks about you know what that performance meant to other people who saw it and what it means for her, you know, as a source of royalty checks, which must be nice. Mm -hmm. And, and as the launching pad for a broader career that at this point, you know, has had many more years beyond Uhura than up to that point.
1: One of the things that, that I was really proud of in, in, in the book is that you do not shy away from not just the women, but the relationships these women had on and off camera, um, Uh, Uhura, Storm, were not by a long shot any of the women or or female characters, women characters um, that we've come to know in context context of whiteness, blackness, uh, women of color, uh, mutants of color. Um, You were very inclusive in that and very respectful about their portrayals of sexuality and their relationships. Um, Any thoughts on the modern interpretation of Ohora with uh, Saldana's Ohora? Um, I like
2: I like Saldana's Hora. Um, I like that the role very clearly sort of chooses a lane mm-hmm. with respect to sexuality. Mm-hmm. I like that you know for a contemporary film adaptation, you know those writers and those producers decided, and Zoe Saldana as an actor does that role in a way where the ambiguity about okay, well is uhura as a character is she a sexual person or is she not so much right Mm -hmm. is she all consumed by work or you know where do her romantic interests lie you know is is she you know attracted to someone is it unrequited they're so clear about it in the films Mm -hmm. that that makes our job as viewers easy right so we can assess what we think of that and i think it also is a mercy to her as an actor and speaks to the advancement that actors like her black women who you know, strongly or not so forcefully have said, you know, what is my motivation? What's my investment? You know, where is my character romantically, sexually? How much or how little do I put into this? I think it's a testament to the work that lots of black women actors have done that whatever we think of her performance and whatever uh, Zoe Saldana thinks of it, she gets to play it in a way that's pretty clear. And I Mm -hmm. think that's important.
1: One thing that, that never quite set right with me, uh, with, with Storm's relationship with Kitty Pride. Um, and you do mention this in touch on, on the roles of black women and women of color, uh, in, in places of authority of supposed authority, but were really in service to white women. Um, that was a really important perspective, um, for me to read from a black man, uh, How do you, how do you reconcile those types of manifestations for a woman of power, natural or mutant, uh, still ending up being in a a place of servitude to the same. It always seems to come back to the same thing. Do you see that changing in, 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 modern comics or modern science fiction, or do you still see the same themes running through?
2: Um, you know, I see I see some divergence, right? Like I don't think that there's so much a, a progress mm-hmm. of, right? Seeing these enduring images of black women in some areas of popular culture. Um, I don't think that it's progress per se, but I do think that there is a divergence, so that there are more visions to look at mm-hmm. and there are more interpretations of what these prior visions can do for us in the present. So I think of right like a uh, Willow Smith is you know she had scripted a comic that was illustrated by another young woman artist who I think was a, a young woman artist of color and they created you know a story with a protagonist who looks like Willow Smith mm-hmm. and I'm like that's that's important um, I probably just bulldozed over my young black feminist genius landscape by confusing what willow smith was doing with what amanda stenberg is doing Mm -hmm. that's probably what i just did but (laughs) but but i'm like hold on willow smith does need to be in a comic um yeah but yeah but amanda stenberg right is creating a vision on her own terms now right and being a boss generally like that kind of work
1: i love that girl
2: that that kind of work, right? That's really important. And I don't think it's important in contrast to having an enduring representation of a black woman, a woman of power, as you say. I like that. I wish I had thought of it. <laughs> um, I don't think that's in contrast to that. Um, I think it builds on it yes. in yes. an important way, right? I mean, Storm, as a character, something that was really important for me was to discuss a role that had been enacted and performed by a black woman, mm-hmm. and that I argue is importantly authored on her terms in Nichelle Nichols's career, including her performance as Uhura. But I think it's also important to recognize that a lot of these images, if we see them and recognize that they're controlling images or that they're compromised and compromising, that they don't offer mm-hmm. so much, right, that they're, that they're impoverished, they're like, they're not nourishing us as much mm-hmm. as they need to, mm-hmm. I think it's also important to wrestle with those images that are authored by other people but that exert some influence on us in part just because they've been around so long. I mean, Storm is 40 storm has been in comics for 40 years that's a pretty long time that's That's longer than and she's been all over the world
1: in the comics yes she didn't just stay in one place she has been all over the world and has been interactive with so many different cultures and so many different manifestations of even who she changed into and has i believe is still becoming i don't think that story is going to end anytime soon i'm looking forward to see it expand even more because she's 40, you know?
2: Right, right. Me too. I think that at this stage, right, I mean, we have culture heroes and icons. Um, my friend Ramsey has written a book about Marvel Comics, and he deals with the Fantastic Four, right, mm-hmm, who have been around mm-hmm. for so long, just so long, and have told so many different kinds of stories that respond to the cultural moment that they're in. And when I look at something like... Uh, x-men comics that pose this allegory about race and this allegory about sexuality through Mm -hmm. mutants and stuff i think that that's really important to examine how that has worked out differently over time but i also think that even if there's a relatively minor space a relatively marginal space for a character who is a black woman authored by people who are not black women right even if that's a minor space, a side note, the fact that that figure has been around for so long and has done so much tells us that, you know, we have by no means exhausted what that cultural figure can mean, right? We have not exhausted mm-hmm. that narrative. Mm-hmm. And in part, what it's done that I think is most important is that, you know, that image has given black women, even if they were not its authors, right? It belongs to black women right that that's what that figure is for if it's a representation of you if it's a figure of you that looks like you then it's yours to relate to on your terms and looking at the different things that 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 those narratives and travels and changes of storm have done in 40 years of comics and could do in the future i think that's actually important enough to do you know
1: is speculative blackness a message or a love letter? Ooh, I don't
2: know. Um, like that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know what it is? It's um. So there's a there's a a, a book that I really dig um, is called Feminist Fabulation by Marlene Barr. And Marlene Barr's is a, a critic of feminist science fiction, which is
1: mm-hmm.
2: a whole other story, but is a tremendous just wellspring of creativity and culture in general, and especially in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she says uh, to kind of frame her investigation of gender, sexuality, and and science fiction from a feminist perspective is um, she talks about the, the golden record that went into space with the Voyager probe, right? Mm. And she talks about how on that golden record, there's like a depiction of a human man and a human woman, and... That's a story, right, that humanity tells about itself Mm -hmm. as a kind of message for, you know, aliens, for the future, future. for a contemporary society. Uh And I look at that document and I look at her feminist interpretation of it and say, well, you know, that's dope that, that she recognizes, right, that the significance of all of this imaginative work we do is very much bound up with what we would like to tell ourselves about what it means to be human. And I hope speculative blackness is a love letter to people who need it to be that. You know, I hope that it's a a message of Mm self-love to people who are black and nerdy and probably black and nerdy and if not queer, you know, just like a little bit queer, right? Uh, If they read it and take from it something sustaining, something affirming, or -hmm. something that's like frustrating in a way that it encourages them to double down on something sustaining and affirming for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Then that's that's pretty great, you know? And I, I think I take the most from academic books that are like that. I mean, Marlene Barr's book does that, right? It's not just a book for other English professors, science fiction writers, critics, but it's a book that says like, look, here's a broad feminist interpretation of what's going on And so it reaches me for reasons that I would have come to it even if I were not writing about some similar texts. And I look at like, you know, what Nichelle Nichols writes about her life and her career. Well, that's absolutely a message about, you know, the triumph and the challenges that she's overcome Mm -hmm. and a declaration of who she is on her own terms. And it's also, you know, it's a love letter to herself and her accomplishments that is very meaningful for people who encounter it that way and identify with her or are inspired by her. So I think, you know, although I have negative things to say about, you know, the limits I see on some science fiction texts, Mm -hmm. I have some negative things to say about, you know, how American culture and American capitalism don't allow us to flourish in the ways that we deserve to so that we can be creative and we can envision and practice our liberation. I have a lot of negative things to say, but I also want that message to to point us to you know where we can draw resources from you know what we can do instead what we can do in the meantime
1: for sure i have i'm really glad that i had the privilege of uh, reviewing your book your first book your first foray into your literary ownership i am I'm very proud to to have read this book and to have learned so much and connected with so much in it. I want to do a quick five with you. Um, quick five questions. For sure. What's your favorite color? Blue. What's the last thing you ate?
2: Oh, yogurt. What
1: do you do when you can't sleep?
2: Uh, I get up and I sit in a different room.
1: Hmm. haven't tried that. What's your favorite flower?
2: Oh, um, a lily, I think. Yeah. Sandals or wingtips? Uh, wingtips. Yeah.
1: Nice. Thank you so much for being with us, Andre. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you, Karan. I am so pleased to have given you something to read and to have had this opportunity to talk with you.
1: All right, girls and boys, the book is called Speculative Blackness, the Future of Race in Science Fiction with Professor Andre Carrington. Please pick it up. Check it out. Give him some love. You can find him on Twitter at Prof underscore Carrington. And we will see you soon. This is Karan with Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thanks so much.